I have been absolutely riveted by an amazing new memoir called Lucky Jim, written by a very talented man with a fascinating life by the name of James Hart. One of the things, just one of the things you should know about James Hart is that he was married for a time to singer Carly Simon. But there is much more to the story of James Hart than that. And uh, James Hart's uh, memoir, Lucky Jim, is uh, disarmingly honest, uh, not only about uh, the complexities and the joys and difficulties of his relationship with Carly Simon, but uh, also a real-life heartbreak uh, that uh, came to him in in many, many different uh, avenues and arenas, and uh, a a struggle with... uh, with crack addiction that very nearly led to his death. Uh, His recovery is also a a very important part of this uh, memoir. And uh, along the way, we also hear about some of his memorable encounters with some of the most famous people in the world. And um, I've never read a book quite like it, and I'm excited for the next few minutes to speak with its author uh, about it. It's published by Clayus Press. Again, it's called Lucky Jim. And James Hart, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you very much, Greg. I really have loved your book, and I'm so glad we can talk about it. Um, I've sketched out uh, at least some of the particulars of your kind of the arc of your life. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about the circumstances under which you sat down to write this memoir. Uh, how long after the the final events chronicled in this book uh, did that occur? And and what was galvanizing you to tell this complicated story in this way? Um, Well, I I guess I probably started in 2009 or so, um, which was a couple of years after Carly and I had separated and divorced. And um, I, I guess one uh, one reason was I had always, in some form or another, been a writer. Um, and then I realized that I had this, you know, somewhat um, unusual American story. Um, and then on another level to try to under, you know, it's funny, I wrote a novel years ago and and I, I thought, well, this will be easy because this is my life. I know it. And then, of course, I guess what most memoir, memoir writers find out is they don't know the story until they write it. And so there was a lot revealed to me in writing it that I didn't, didn't quite understand, figuring out the story of my life as presented as a story. So in other words, you a lot of things together or made certain connections only upon writing this memoir. I mean, that's, yeah, that's right. I mean, I knew them in a vague way, but as I began to, you know, look at all of it, and as you have said, it's quite complicated um, to try to get it um, to understand what, what were the, the key moments and the, and the key people and, and my own development as a human being, um, you know, that gets fairly complicated. What, of course, a lot of people will, will talk the most about 
will be uh, some of the memorable encounters that you chronicle in this book, uh, memorable encounters that you had uh, during your 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 marriage with uh, Carly Simon when you were meeting people like Bill and Hillary Clinton and Mike Nichols and Diane Sawyer and even Jacqueline Kennedy. Um, as you share about those encounters, and we'll we'll probably talk about some of them in a little more detail a little later on. I just wonder uh, what it felt like to be sharing about those kind of encounters, and I think especially about uh, the, the, the many conversations, including one-on-one conversations that you had with someone like, like Mrs. Kennedy. What did it feel like to be sharing those encounters so publicly? And did you share them with any sense of reluctance? Um, I, not exactly reluctance, um, because... I think that, and I hope that the book demonstrates, particularly in the in the case of Jackie or Mike Nichols, or you know what remarkable people these are and and have been in in the life of our culture and our times, and and how important they are, and and how 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 fascinating I found them, and and how how perhaps because of my unusual positioning in their lives and in mine, that I could give uh, the reader maybe an, another kind of glimpse of these, of these folks that, that people might not know. Um, you know, uh, I, I talk about that first meeting with, with Jackie, where we had this two-hour conversation. Carly was, was really, I think, trying to get Jackie's approval of her new, her new man, you know, or, or rather, Jackie's opinion of her new man, and and Jackie and I just, I think, immediately over some rather interesting issues, just kind of bonded in a in a very in a very deep way uh, in a in a first meeting, and then also just to you know give a side to try to describe a side of her that you know her in her her terrific sense of humor her her great sense of perspective on herself and others and what she meant in the world and how aware she was of it. And, you know, so, so, and it's tricky, you know, um, Carly Simon, Jackie Kennedy, the Clintons, they, they don't need Jim Hart to understand how to be famous, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Um, but I was hoping to give, a little bit of of a of a perspective that you know people might might otherwise not have right i think what you're talking about here is the fact that you regarded yourself as in a sense a very ordinary person in the company of of what the world regards as extraordinary people and uh, and it isn't often that we hear that perspective yeah and oh yeah and and also I think I offered them some comfort in the sense that I I was in their world but I wasn't of their world and and that could be that could be fun for them too you know that 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 this was this to describe myself as ordinary seems seems a little um 
wrong, but yes. Uh, <laughs> well, sir, ordinary as far as the world would know, that's for sure. Right. I mean, a, 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 a normal onlooker, <laughs> if they knew anything about you and who you were, would, would see that. And, and certainly that's the way, at least for much of the time, you saw yourself. Absolutely. Yeah, um, I want to ask you what's kind of a mundane question, but I want to make sure I I I, uh, I get this question in before we're done. Namely, the fact that whenever you are sharing with us what I assume to be your best, clearest recollections of of specific conversations, mm. that there are no quotation marks. That instead, uh, these conversations are shared with print that is in italics. Right. But without right. any any quotation marks at all, I'm just curious uh, if anything in particular prompted that choice on your part. Well, it's a style that that I find the italics are quotation marks. In other words, I just find I find it a, a cleaner, clearer way of understanding conversation, and and I love getting the quotation marks out of the text. I, I just think it's. It's, it's I I find it easier and sort of just crisper to read as a reader, and I found it in someone else's memoir first, and and I liked it a lot, and that's why I used it. I like it too. I like it yeah. too. We're speaking with James Hart, and we're talking about his memoir, which is called Lucky Jim. Uh, in this, he chronicles his uh, eventful childhood. Uh, and much of his adult life, which included uh, years of marriage to the uh, great American singer and composer Carly Simon. Uh, it also chronicles his uh, battles with uh, alcoholism and uh, with uh, crack addiction. And it also covers uh, some of his uh, own confusion regarding his own sexuality. You know, it's interesting, as I outline just all of the basic elements of this memoir, um, in a sense, it's a wonder that it isn't 500 pages long. It's actually a a relatively compact book. I wonder, as you set down to actually write this memoir, uh, how did it take shape, and uh, and how sprawling a canvas were you thinking that you would be working with, Or, or was it a very conscious choice on your part to, in a sense keep the storytelling as as relatively compact as it is i suppose at the beginning i mean the the the, the actual manuscript over all these years is probably 1500 pages long um, but with the help of other writers some some very gifted and acclaimed writers anyway as as well the paring it down you know i'm a i'm a writer i guess you know there are putter inners and taker outers and and I clearly am a taker outer, and and so other writers. William Kennedy, the great American novelist, is a great pal of mine. Uh, a number of other writers who are acknowledged in the back of the book, great writers, um, all helped me. They're, as I joked that they're reading the other night, this book didn't take a village; it took a city. You know, uh, so and then and then the notion of making it readable commercially you know i mean um you and also you can get it you can get it i think you know i hope i have in a you know you don't have to sprawl along um and i think it made the book better 
Absolutely. I, I really appreciated that fact about him in, in no small measure because in the line of work I do, I'm I'm probably reading half a dozen books every week. And, I don't uh, get so... how you guys do it. I just don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> well, I am glad that I read this book. I really appreciate that. Uh, you begin with your first uh, encounter with Carly Simon. And uh, even though your book is about a lot more than that, since that's where your book begins, I think we should get to that matter right off the bat. And I want to ask you, though, uh, if you wrote this book, in a sense, with the blessing of Carly Simon, your your ex-wife. Yes, very much. I mean, she always, she was... As a, she was probably throughout our marriage the greatest fan of my writing. Um, I've written a lot of poetry over the years as well, and and she just she just kept egging me on to to write write anything that I ever wrote. And then at the very when when I started to understand, you know, the great great difficulty, especially when you're dealing with. Um, famous names, you know, is is not to injure anyone, and it's and it's very hard in trying to describe, trying to relate and describe a human being, uh, not to not to be hurtful because you know we're all such um, <laughs> works in progress, um, and you know to show a to show a human, you've got to show flaws and idiosyncrasies idiosyncrasies and you know so it's very tricky and all sorts of memoir writers are challenged by this so I called Carly when I was starting as I began to feel what might happen here and I said there's only one thing I'm really concerned about and she said what's that and I said I'm concerned about harming you in any way in writing this book and she said oh don't worry about that she said, just tell the truth. She said, that's all I've ever wanted from you is the truth. Go tell it. You know, so, and, and she's written her own memoir that came out a year ago or so. And uh, so she understood as she was going through that process, the same problem I would have. One of the things that I think makes it uh, work for us as the reader, at least, is the fact that your honesty is so even-handed, and you are every bit as honest about yourself and your own foibles and frailties as you are about hers. And, of course, that's different from, for instance, a, I don't know, you know like a disgruntled gardener <laughs> who, uh, you know, writes about uh, their crabby, selfish boss who happened to be Carly Simon or uh, or uh, Elvis Presley or whoever it was, and it would be just an opportunity to sort of vent in one direction and paint one's picture of your own self in in, in, mm. in rather heroic or selfless terms <laughs> and you haven't done that of course uh you you are scrupulous in terms of yeah. trying to be as honest and open about your own frailty as you are about for instance hers mm. to whatever the language is you know um i'm the failed human being in this story not not anyone else um and i just uh, when I say failed, I'm the guy who's trying to to display. I I can be deeply honest about myself. It's my story. I I can't be. I, I don't have the right to tell other people's stories. You know. Um, so I tried to to frame it very carefully so that I wouldn't do that thing that you're describing because I I just think this is not a tell-all. You know. 
Right. Um, I'm telling all about myself in terms of my investigation of my own life and my understanding of it. And, of course, how you, how you do that so it doesn't become so solipsistic is through, the, through other people, you know, through Carly and Jackie and, and my father and, and my seminary time and on and on and on, you know. Hmm. Your initial encounter with Carly Simon is so memorable in so many ways, and that is what dominates the first chapter of, of the book. Uh, at least in a nutshell, describe this first encounter uh, to our listeners. Uh, so I was, it was 1987, and I was a mid-level insurance guy working for a very large insurance company in New York. And I went up to see my son, who was uh, severely handicapped, and he was in a horseback riding event for, hand, for disabled kids. And, um, and it was a fabulous event, and it connected me to my life in, in a new way with him and and he was about 10 years old. And then I went back to the Hudson train station. Hudson, New York, is about 30 miles south of Albany, New York. And I walked into the train station with my my first wife, ex-wife, and my son. They were they had been dropping me off. And there was an acquaintance of mine. Um, I, I didn't know him very well. And, and he was standing next to this stunning-looking woman. And he introduced us. He said, Jim, this is Carly, Carly Jim. And um, I couldn't get over her. Um, and so she went on the train. I followed after and followed through two or three cars. And there she was sitting alone. And, and I said, and she said, would you like to sit down? Later, she told me reluctantly because she was in the middle of this book she was in love with. And then we had one of those incredible traveling conversations that people have, and and six months later we were married. Mm. It's so interesting how she <laughs> says at one point it was such an interesting encounter because usually we spend the whole time talking about me, and of course you didn't know who she was, so that was the last thing that was well, going to happen yeah, in a not, sense. Not to be too too cute. I knew right away she was somebody. I had that feeling, you know. And and about halfway through the conversation on the train, I asked what her her full name was. And she very very hesitantly said Carly Simon. I knew she, and when she told me that, I knew she was very famous. Mm. I, you know, I knew that much. Right. But I but I had this kind of is she did she date Jerry Brown? Was she the one with James Taylor? Was uh, was she like Judy Collins? What you know? Um, so I, I didn't real, but I knew she was very very famous. And then so I I I didn't want to enter that world uh, uh, because I was too intimidated by it. So I just sort of filibustered right to Grand Central. Hardly <laughs> let her hardly let her have a word in because I was afraid I would be overwhelmed by it. Right. You write from the moment that she says her name, Carly Simon, you write, those first 45 minutes were the only time we would ever be equals, and the balance vanished as the world moved in the opposite direction. Mm. Uh, uh, and, so, and, you, and you also write, uh, it ended, that is, that equality ended as I heard the name that would forever haunt me. I would often wish she had never told me or had made up 
a new one. <laughs> and it, so 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 interesting to to think about that. I think a lot of people uh would would react as as you did when there is a second meeting. I mean, uh actually explain to our listeners how she left it in terms of making it possible for you to call her. This is a great story. So we're standing in Grand Central Station. We're looking up at the ceiling. You know, the, the 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 stars are on the ceiling of the Grand Central Station. You know, so beautifully done, and and we're trying to uh, identify constellations. And and I'm trying to fix. anyway. So we're we're now parting. And I I said I don't have your number, and she said it's Jim Crab. I said what? And she said Jim Crab. Just dial that. I use words for my telephone number. And, you know, as I say at the ending of that chapter, who would know that the word Jim Crab would change my life? Right, exactly. And, of course, when it comes to dialing her, then your first couple attempts are not not quite right. I mean, in terms of various ways to spell Jim and spell Crab. and, and, And I assume, by the way, that's no longer her number. No, but somebody somebody who read the book said I I dialed Jim Crab to see if I could get a similar answer in my life. <laughs> wouldn't that be wouldn't that be something? And I I think it's so cute when you uh get together with her that sort of the uh the mantra in your mind is talk about her, talk about her, talk yeah. about her because right. you'd thought about this first conversation which had been remarkably little about her and about right. uh, her life. Well, that, that's, I think that's the best sales, sales line of my life. She said when we were in the station, she said, you know, this has been a very unusual conversation for me. I said, why is that? And she said, usually when I meet a man, we talk about me. And, and I said, uh, oh, I was going to save that for the second date. And, and she liked that a lot. Mm-hmm. And so, You spend quite a lot of the book trying to explain the attraction between the two of you. Mm. Uh, what do you think was at the heart of what she found so attractive in you? I think she has said this a number of times. Um, I was, I was in in a certain way uh, a companion, the kind of companion that she had longed for her whole life. That is, that is, I was. We were in whatever way we're about. We were deep in it with one another. You know, Carly, not surprisingly, given her background, uh, you know, loves books. is a remarkable reader and thinker and an artist. And 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 I offered oddly, especially given my background, a whole other world, a whole other universe to her that was entirely different than the one she had inhabited. You know, I had had come from my father was a gangster. I I I entered the Franciscan seminary. Um, you know, I I had a I brought a whole world fully formed to her that was very different than hers, and somehow we just connected on the deepest levels and and just loved 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 each other's company. To this day, we love each other's company. Hmm. You know, I think. I so appreciate the eloquent way in which you describe how difficult it was to be part of 
a relationship like this, which was always going to be, at least in some ways, deeply out of balance. Mm. Uh, That is between uh, somebody so famous Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you, uh, at that moment, not famous whatsoever. Uh, At one point you say... um, as, and this is at a point when you are describing this incredible life where you are with her as you are meeting just a host of incredibly famous people there at uh, Martha's Vineyard where she where she lived. You write, it, it felt in some ways like my life was far less trivial than it had been, yet this might be a fatal delusion. I seem to be meeting every famous person still alive, and many of them seem genuinely interested in me. In addition, I returned to writing my novel and lots of new poetry, and I was in love with a woman I believed to be the most extraordinary creature. Yet, this might be the place where my life would become deeply unimportant, where I would never be more than an asterisk to more significant lives. I really think you put your finger on it right there. And, uh, yeah, yeah. That's, I must say that's nicely put. <laughs> it really is. I wonder if you could talk about how you wrestled with those feelings, feelings that I assume were there nearly from the very beginning. I mean, even from the, yeah. the end of that first conversation, I should think those reservations or fears were already present. Uh, how did you try to wrestle with them, and how much did they predominate, in a sense, your every waking thought? Yeah, I, in in one way they didn't at all. Carly Carly also was, was just incredible in taking care of me in that world. Um, she knew what a challenge this would be for anybody, and and she really tried tried so hard, and I think very successfully in 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 our way to cover me and make me so important to her that um, and and you know the other part is, of course, I was meeting you know hundreds of famous people in these years. But we only had a few famous friends, you know. We 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 didn't like hang out with celebrities, if you know what I mean. Um, but you know, and then the other person who helped a lot was was Mike Nichols, who we became we came. Uh, I became a very close friend of Mike's, and and you know, he's if anyone knows about celebrity and so forth, uh, you know, it was Mike and. One of the things I loved is when I very first when I first met him, I said, "Mike, you, could you please help me with all of this? Because I don't know what I'm doing. You've been in this world forever." And 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 he said, "The first thing you need to know about fame is that the people most interested in it are other famous people." <laughs> <laughs> and. And he would he would often just be be so helpful to me in terms of perspective, as was Carly, um, and as were so many people who were friends. They saw me as having value and weight and in importance the way that friends do. Mm-hmm. You know, you know. As you were just uh, talking there, it reminded me of a moment in the book that is connected to this issue, but. I didn't realize it at the time when I read it. It's when you have your very first conversation with Carly Simon's famous ex-husband, James Mm -hmm. Taylor. And 
the I believe the the real reason for that encounter and that conversation was to have a talk about their children. That is right. the two children that they had together, and right. you were uh, in a sense to become. A, uh, their stepfather. I don't think at the right. time of this conversation, you and Carly Simon were yet married, but I'm not sure. I think it was just before we we were married. Yeah. But his in in talking about his his concerns about them and his hopes that they would grow up happy and successful. I believe he says something to the effect that I just I want to make sure that they have their own lives or yeah. figure out what what their own lives should be, and that most of the time. When the children of famous people get into terrible trouble, it is because they don't have their own lives, in a sense, uh, or words to that effect. I wish I had them yeah. in front of me because he says it well. And it occurs to me that, that that concern James Taylor was expressing about his own children is, is the heart and soul of what was so challenging about for you in being married to Carly Simon. Yeah, I think I even make that observation that if uh, I think I say, well, if if James thought of that about his own children, what did he think about me, a guy who met his, his ex-wife on a train, and they got married six months later, and now I'm the stepfather of his children? But <laughs> in a certain way, I think James was probably uh, pleased about who I was, that I wasn't another famous person, that I that I actually shared the space with Ben and Sally, his children, in terms of, uh, except I had already had a life, of course. Um, and, and I think, I think that was helpful with, 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 with the the children that, you know, oh God, not another famous person in our lives, you know, Hmm. because Carly, of course, uh, certainly could have married, um, you know, any number of famous folks, I'm sure, you know. Um, so I think it was both a challenge and a solace, but James was very concerned that, you know, the children of famous people get lost in in a in a in the world where where nothing exists that that matters to them you know they don't have a a, a normal whatever that is life you know hmm. um, and Carly was very aware of this also right how difficult was it for you to write about and describe uh, the many and various sort of idiosyncrasies and foibles of of your ex-wife Carly Simon. Uh you you write at one point she was a collection of unwarranted anxiety, surprising bravery and a compelling openness about her many foibles and and fears. And of course some of that is public knowledge even if we right. haven't read her own memoir. Sure. Nevertheless, uh what did it feel like to be sharing some of these moments in which you describe Carly, at her most fragile or most broken? Mm. I, I, it was easier because, as you say, she herself had been so honest about so much of it. And and so I wasn't really revealing in terms of, of general description anything that she really hadn't revealed herself over many, 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 many years. And then because I because of how I see her, uh, you know, Carly Carly has a courage and a bravery that I've rarely found in 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 many people. There certainly have been some, but you know, to 
to have a life and career and an, you know that is so uh, public and challenging and enormous and to be to struggle with her various the various issues in her life you know she's just she's just a there's an old testament phrase i love uh, a valiant woman you know she's a valiant woman she you know for those of us who don't have the kind of issue she does um we don't understand really the 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 courage that folks with those kind of afflictions, panic, anxiety, et cetera, you know, go through. And and I was always so moved by her ability to, you know, to to get through her fears in, in whatever way she had to do it. And, and the other thing about Carly, which is really admirable and really inspiring, is she always believes, <laughs> and I'm not this kind of guy, that there's going to be a solution to her problem, you know, by noon this afternoon or the next day or the next week, you know, in terms of her anxieties or her, you know, her whatever other struggles. So she's a very inspiring woman, I mean, a person um, in, in that regard. So that made it a little easier to write about. I'm speaking with James Hart, who is the author of a beautifully written memoir called Lucky Jim, which tells, among other things, uh, his marriage to uh, singer Carly Simon, but also talks about other really interesting aspects about uh, his life, both before and after uh, that that marriage. Um, James Hart, we should say a word about uh, your childhood and, in particular, uh, the difficult relationship that you had, uh, especially early on, with your own father, who was an alcoholic and prone to rages that had to be terrifying. In fact, some of what you, the way you describe some of these rages in your book really makes it feel like we are there in the room. Um, was it difficult to relive some of this as you wrote this memoir? Uh, I guess it was. Um, again, what helped was that he had become so examined himself later in his life and and so insightful and 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 so open and and taking responsibility for what he had done so that made it easier but um but getting at you know trying to get again at the core of what what the issue was that kind of violence and what it does to a young child and and what it does to a family and you know and 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 what impact that had on the rest of my life. I think it was quite significant. You know, we all in some form have to work through, quote, get over um, those. <laughs> Many of us spend lifetimes getting over our families of origin. Um, and I don't feel, and I and I feel that, that because of how well he got, because of his work on himself, you know, I there was a lot of compensation in my life. But those those early years were absolutely terrifying. Hmm. I woke up, you know, I was terrified every day of of what was about to happen. But oddly enough, I, I do I do compare to my father, my experience with my father, because he was such a charismatic, powerful figure, to my being able to be in Carly's world. <laughs> mm. with another charismatic not terrifying but but the world she was in so so 
could be so terrifying in certain ways. Terrifying is probably the wrong word, but very different. You know, I think there was a connection in in some odd way. Absolutely, and you recount a, a really important phone conversation that you have with your father. This is in I think 1987, mm. uh, right around Christmas time, where you call, <laughs> filled with all kinds of resentment about uh, what you had experienced at his hand so many years earlier, and. You are calling, in a sense, to, in your mind, dramatically clear the air and uh, sum it up, and let's uh, <laughs> giving him a chance to uh, say something that would somehow atone for all the pain he had inflicted on your family. And that that phone call takes quite a drastic turn. Can you tell our listeners about that? Well, I I don't know. Are we allowed to use certain words on this channel, or do we? <laughs> To clean them up. Uh, maybe clean it up a little, yeah. yes. yes. Um, he, I, I said, you have to, you you really, you know, I, I, I was furious. It was Christmas. I didn't say Merry Christmas. He said Merry Christmas. And and uh, I said, you need to tell me something, and I need, you need to tell me something. And he said, uh, actually, I do. It's something I've been meaning to tell you for a long time. Go blank yourself. And um, not the apology you were looking for. Not the apology I was looking for. And then he said something which I still think was so insightful. He said, "Listen, you need to forgive me, not for me, but for yourself." He said, "But the the real problem is, is because of the violence I inflicted upon you in your childhood, I stole that ability from you. I took the ability of forgiveness from you." And it's, it's, you're going to have to find that somewhere else. And he said, and you're going to have to find it from strangers in order to bring it back to me to be able to forgive me. Hmm. And I could see immediately how right that was. Hmm. You uh, talk about uh, how powerfully affected you were by some of your early religious training. Hmm. Um hmm. As you look back on that, what do you think was drawing you so powerfully to some of those experiences? Well, I, I suppose one, there are many ways to think about that. One was a great enthusiasm and love for God, and, and, and that was so present, and my mother had fostered it, and my father had, in fact. But also there was the escape from from the violent world, and, and then... Um, and I, I and I entered this world at fourteen, which is what they used to do. They're called they were called minor seminaries, high school seminaries, for a religious order named the Graymore Friars, who were a Franciscan religious order, and and they had they were educated, they were elegant, they were sophisticated, they were urbane. They uh, and then back back in those days there was the beauty of the ritual, the incense, the music, the flowers, the the Latin, the you know, it was an aesthetic. The, the aesthetic issues were so powerful. You know, we were living as the book describes in the basement apartment in Long Beach, New York, by the ocean. Suddenly, I'm in I'm in this magnificent um, seminary and this uh, you know beautiful uh, place up in the Finger Lakes. It was like, my whole world had changed, and, and, and I couldn't have been happier to be there. Mm. 
And you you share really fascinating stories about some of your encounters there, including a very powerful connection with uh, a a schoolmate who uh, Mm -hmm. is tragically killed, and we leave it to our listeners to explore that. Uh, It is also at the hands of of, uh, one of these priests that uh, you actually begin drinking. Um, Can you just say a quick word about that? Yeah, he was a, he was incredible. He was a wonderful, wonderful man. But he he liked to drink, and uh, not unlike not unlike uh, there's a long Franciscan tradition in that regard. <laughs> but uh, we started kind of drinking every day, and 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 um, and I sort of wanted to be just like him. He was like my my hero. He was also the rector of the seminary, and he was a very compelling, fabulous guy. And but um, that's where my daily drinking habit began. So, mm. well, ultimately, uh, you marry, and your wife gives birth to a son who mm. uh, became a very important part of your life. But uh, mm. at a very early age, uh, uh, something happened with your son. Uh, a very serious problem emerged that nearly claimed his life, and ultimately. Right drastically altered his life and the life that you had as a as a family together uh explain uh what uh disorder uh entered his life uh so he, so savagely yeah. yeah he had a thing uh, uh it's called infantile myoclonic seizure disorder which i guess um uh, often appears in, in the six when a, an infant is six months old. Six months old, it's called a hypnic jerk. It's that thing that happens when you start as you're about to fall asleep, which most people do occasionally. And that's actually, I think, it's a kind of a seizure. But our, you know, the the fully developed brain can protect the brain from that, from the body, and from that. When it happens at six months old. It's it's an extremely debilitating and uh, problem that that results in in usually pretty profound uh, handicaps, mental and physical handicaps, mm. which is what happened to my son Eamon. Right, and of course his ability to uh, communicate communicate and mm. understand the uh, the world and in, in, yeah. interact with others is is severely limited. One yeah. of the most touching and also heartbreaking moments for you in your time with Carly was the first time she met your son. And uh, explain the interesting connection that was between the two of them. Well, um, (laughs) Eamon, unbeknownst to me, had had started listening to Carly's uh, comeback album called Coming Around Again before I had met her. And he had this uncanny ability. He had very few words verbally, but he could memorize songs like in a in a in a moment. You know, they're, like any song he listened to, he seemed to be able. He had this special kind of gift for that. So he knew a whole bunch of her lyrics. When probably by the time he met her, he probably knew all of them. And anyway, they would sing together. And and throughout his life. Uh, they would sing together on the phone in person, and then he would always sing. He, we had he had all the Carly Simon albums, and of course, when he was away from her, he would sing with her. And and it became a real touchstone for both of them. Hmm. And um, 
And then there's that scene in the hospital when he, we had a, a procedure and he couldn't come out of anesthesia. Um, we didn't know whether he was punishing us or it was a physical problem. And then finally, she did a beautiful recording of the song My Romance. And I started singing My Romance to him in his unconscious state. And he came out of the, the anesthesia singing the lyrics of that song, which you know, with a big smile on its face. Mm. It's interesting how music has played such an important role in his life. I mean, it's been important to you. I mean, it's not every author of a memoir who talks about singing in the Berlioz Requiem. So (laughs) clearly you know something about music, but uh, it is in a very different way that music has figured so prominently in your your young son's life. Yeah. Ultimately, uh, your memoir takes us into very, very dark corridors of your life when you fall into uh, uh, addiction to crack, and this right. is something that very nearly ends your life. Uh, the, the redemption that you ultimately found was certainly hard fought, and it's hard to read those those pages. Mm. Uh, were they hard to write? Yeah, they were um, hard to write um, because reliving that, you know, has its own terror. Um, but they're so dramatic, and I think so important um, to to let people know the horror of this thing. And, and you know, Lucky Jim is, uh, you know, to, that Jim is alive is just, you know, remarkable. Um, and to you know, hopefully help. And, and the other thing is, you know, I wasn't exactly the profile of a guy who would, should relapse on crack cocaine. You know, there are a lot of other things I could have. So that was also a surprising part of the whole business. Hmm. Um, but also, you know, it's a fascinating. It's fascinating how and one of the great dangers of also all of our lives in so many ways. Uh, you know, having smoking crack cocaine felt as full a life as being with Carly Simon. I mean, that's that's one of the great sort of bizarre things about about at least my psychology that that it seemed absolutely natural once I was doing it, mm. and it was absolutely the way towards you know a sudden death. Mm. Well, fortunately, that's a fate that you avoided, and you yeah. uh, you write with. Uh, with uh, with great clarity and honesty about uh, that difficult road to recovery. Uh, the book, again, is called Lucky Jim. It's published by Clayus Press and the author James Hart. James Hart, thank you so much for writing such a great book, and thank you so much for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. I have so enjoyed this, and I wish you well. Thank you so much. The same to you. Whew, all right, there we go. Thank you so much. I'm really glad we got to do that. Me too. Thanks, Greg. You betcha. Bye-bye. Bye.